Welcome back to CGSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sean Collins and I'm the host of the next hour of programming. On this month's show, we're going to take a look ahead to COP21 in Paris and explore a number of different stories that relate to this defining climate summit. We're first going to have an interview with Katie Sullivan, who's the Director of North America and Climate Policy for the International Emissions Trading Association. Katie's going to enlighten us with some of the background on the market mechanisms that support rallying private capital towards energy and environment challenges. We're then going to switch things up and have an interview with Prit Kotecha, who's the Director of Climate Strategy for Suncor, and he's going to explain to us why a large oil and gas company like Suncor is publicly advocating on behalf of priced carbon and how they deal with shadow pricing of carbon in their financial models. We're then going to throw things over to Julius Wesch, who's one of our volunteers in Germany, who's going to explore what some of the German level actions are around and leading into COP21, as well as some of the factors that we shall be paying attention to as it relates to COP21. But before we get going, first off, we have Kaylee Taylor with This Month in Energy. there, Nerds, It's Kaylee Taylor, co-founder of Student Energy here, and this is This Month in Energy. The big news in November was the IEA launched their annual World Energy Outlook. Here are some of the highlights. There is a low chance of oil price recovery with the agency predicting no more than $80 a barrel oil until at least 2020. Natural gas production is predicted to increase by 40% by 2030. Coal will continue to make up a large share of the electricity market globally, but is particularly vulnerable to predicted stringency in environmental policy. China and India continue to be the countries to watch for energy demand. India is predicted to see a rise in coal and oil in the near term, but clean tech looks attractive in the longer run. And China will likely see a rise in renewable energies due to the decline of coal power because of air quality concerns. Together, these could cause challenges for big coal exporters like Australia and Indonesia, who feed these growing economies. Renewables made up over half the world's new power generation capacity in 2014, but critics say the IEA lowballed the potential of solar and wind in their future scenarios. Only time will tell. In other news, a study was released ranking the 50 most attractive countries to manufacture solar PV. The results were surprising to the industry, with the U.S. coming in fifth and Germany coming in tenth. The top three were China, Singapore, and Taiwan. Oslo, Norway has announced that it plans to be car-free in five years, making it the first city ever to make this pledge. Goldman Sachs announced a goal of arranging financing and investments in $150 billion worth of clean energy projects by 2025, a part of a promise to harness market-based solutions to address climate change. The U.S. Senate blocked Obama's clean power plan, his flagship climate policy that was targeting new coal plants through EPA regulations. But on the bright side, new energy storage technologies are making inroads in the U.S. There are 552 megawatts of operating battery, flywheel, and compressed air energy storage facilities on the U.S. grid now, and more than 3,500 megawatts in planning stages. And finally, bad news for chocolate and wine lovers. Climate change is warming temperatures and making it hard for both Merlot grapes and cacao trees to grow. 
If that is an incentive for action at the climate summit in Paris at the end of the month, I don't know what is. That's all, folks. That's This Month in Energy. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm joined by Katie Sullivan, who's the Director of North America and Climate Finance for AIDA, which is the International Emissions Trading Association. So welcome to the show, Katie. Thanks for having me, Sean. So first off, uh, who who is AIDA? Who, who do we have the pleasure of chatting with today? <laughs> well, AIDA, we're a global multi-sector business association, and we represent over 150 companies from all over the world, including many from North America. And they are from industry and power and banking. Uh, we have traders, brokers, consultants, uh, clean project developers, the, the whole gamut. Uh, and collectively, we provide an effective business voice on carbon pricing and climate finance and how to leverage private capital into greenhouse gas mitigation and adaptation. Okay. And, and what, what led to the creation of AIDA in the first place? Why, why does AIDA need to have a, a role in this global conversation around energy and climate? Well, uh, we have, I guess, had to adapt quite a bit in recent years, but originally we came out of the the UN process, so the UN Framework um, Convention on Climate Change that had, during Kyoto Protocol years, had identified uh, various market-based instruments uh, to allow for parties, these are countries, to reach their greenhouse gas goals uh, at least cost, so through trading and through offsets. So originally we came out of really that process to provide that business voice to help make sure that these market instruments actually functioned, reached their environmental goal, was attractive to business. Mm -hmm. And and so things must be interesting in your world as we lead into uh, COP21, which is coming up uh, in just over a week's time in Paris. And so... um, Maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna steal your expertise and, and and force you to do my job for a second, Katie. Can you give our listeners a, a really quick overview on on what COP21 is, um, what its its role and importance is from a global climate perspective, uh, as well as some of the the things that you think are really important to pay attention to as part of the COP21 process. Yeah, well, Paris is a big deal. I had mentioned Kyoto Protocol earlier, but really now it's uh, we're entering a brave new world around the UN. Um, UNFCCC, the UN climate policy world, and Paris is really supposed to represent that milestone where the entire business community, and no longer as, I guess, bifurcated or polarized as Kyoto, but everybody's in the same tent uh, around coming to a a global agreement with each party providing their own targets uh, and everything from, you know, the developed countries, Canada, the EU, um, the U.S., Australia, but also the more emerging markets, India, China, Brazil, and developing countries, the smaller, more vulnerable countries, are all uh, a part of the uh, the equation and have been putting forward their post-2020 nationally determined contributions. So with Paris and this new agreement, um, it will be a, ver- a verifiable accord, whether it's legally binding um, or not, we'll see exactly what kind of legal form that takes. But it will help to allow for all countries to make and actually ex- meet and hopefully exceed their their climate commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. So essentially, I mean, Paris Agreement, um, we hope that it establishes the, the rules of the road, frankly, for not just the next few years or post-2020, but for a number of decades to come. 
and how countries might monitor, report their emissions, um, how that would be regularly verified, and then also how to scale up those levels of ambition over time. Mm-hmm. And and where are we at in that process? So so if we're coming to some sort of Paris Agreement or Paris Accord, obviously there's some very large scale um, activities that and, and ideas that are being presented right now. So um, can you give us a sense of, of where this these negotiations are at and, and what are some of the, the important factors that are still being debated? Of course, there's uh, a number of issues that are still being debated. Uh, <laughs> one of them, as I mentioned earlier, the legal form. Um, so the last intercessional, the last negotiation between um, COPs, uh, so COP20 was in Lima last year in December, COP21 is in Paris, um, this year in December. So, uh, the, but throughout the year, you do have these negotiating sessions, and the last one was in Bonn in October. And what came out of the Bonn sessions was a new draft text. So this was 51 pages. Um, whereas previously heading into Bonn, it was around 20 pages. Uh, and you had 30, 31 pages, I think, of the draft text. So that would be the core agreement. Then you had 20 pages um, that were more explanatory statements with. I guess, less legal weight than an agreement. Um, So they call them COP decisions. So the draft text, this contains some of the key articles, and that's how you want to try to parcel it out, these these talks or the agreement. Um, There's mitigation. There's adaptation. You have climate finance, transparency. And so uh, the mitigation alone, it has a number of these sub- buckets or provisions, uh, where I think everybody's keeping an eye on, certainly AIDA is. Uh, so just around the collective long-term goal, uh, that includes several options in brackets, lots of brackets, but around carbon neutrality, emissions peak, and then individual efforts. So individual efforts of countries or parties um, that should be communicated, updated over time. So for instance, and a lot of people are pushing for five-year uh, regular review and updating. And Again, these efforts are all reflected in these contributions I'm speaking to, the post-2020 contributions. Um, and then you have just differentiated efforts. Sections, you know, still talks around developing and developed countries. Are you going to see differentiation um, between developing countries versus developed countries in the actual text, similar to a Kyoto Protocol world, right? Or is that differentiation not going to be a part of it, or will we only see flavors of differentiating the different parties? That's still very much, again, up in the air, Mm -hmm. question marks, will be a lot of debate. Uh, Accounting as well. So there are several options where what are the accounting rules for um, certainly international transfer, of mitigation outcomes, so um, how parties or how countries could cooperate together to implement their targets, mm-hmm. and this is where you know the whole role of markets um, and transferring your units might come in. So I would say, I mean, in Bonn, on the negative side, you had a lengthening of the negotiating text that I just mentioned, but on the positive side, at least um, there has been some coalescing around certain areas, including on markets um, and rules that we are happy to see. Mm-hmm. And and I want to I want to dive into that piece because um, you sort of talked about uh, some of the the formative pieces that led to AIDA in the first place being around creating sort of the market mechanisms that allow private finance to to participate in these sorts of activities. Um, and I wanted to get uh, a sense from you on on what exactly it is that are the barriers that prevent um, large scale private capital from from participating in these sorts of markets and these sorts of activities. 
biggest thing, uh, really, it's, uh, and it's the most challenging thing to overcome, is just the, the political uncertainty, the stroke of pen risk with clarity. And I think uh, it's not just AIDA, but a lot of members of the business community with the clear rules of the game, the clear instruments, what your the, the compliance mechanisms might look like. Uh, you know, business will respond and it will adapt. Uh, it's when you have either no political action or at least uncertainty or risk that the political regulations, um, rules of the game might change that really uh, cause you know, private capital to freeze up or not really know where to go. And we've seen that a lot in the, certainly in the, the climate change space. So one of the questions I have is around the fact that uh, you sort of mentioned creating these like longer term horizons and these these stable markets. Um, but the, the political sort of realm that we live in today, it's often not even a four year election cycle. It can sometimes be a two year election cycle in the U.S. with the, the midterm elections that take place. And so how can these sorts of text and, and these sorts of agreements overcome, to your point, the the risk of the, the pen stroke where a policy change could happen in two years after COP gets signed, and then suddenly one of the major countries is no longer part of this sort of agreement? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's also the nice thing about this, uh, hopefully, what we see coming out of Paris is uh, everybody is in the same tent, right, and a part of the agreement. So even if, you know, they land on an agreement and then you have one or two parties leave that agreement, it doesn't mean that the rest of the world still hasn't signed on to this, right? Um, mm-hmm. And also, uh, you know, there are question marks around the enforceability, right, of um, or implications of in the legal form of this. Uh, so, you know, what you want to see, I think, in Paris, at least at this stage, it will be, you know, at the at a high level. There won't be too many details or too prescriptive um, uh, coming out of Paris. There's hopefully COP 22, 23, 24, to have more of the operational COP decisions related to the exact framing of rules and instruments and mm-hmm. infrastructure. Uh, but you know, just the signal that everybody has signed on to an agreement that initially paves the way for clarity on what kinds of policies and instruments can be used in order to help countries, signatories, reach their targets mm-hmm. will be important. And that obviously then translates into how then domestic policy might play out. And for us, uh, you know, what you see it from the bottom up with their, its nationals um, or subnationals, so states and provinces, is there's so much action happening, right? Mm-hmm. The issue is that it's so fragmented at this point. And so when you see just in Canada alone, it's a good microcosm of the world where you have BC's um, you know, carbon tax and the next door in Alberta, you have it's another another carbon pricing mechanism, um, baseline and credit approach tends to be based. And then you have, you know, a cap and trade program in Quebec, California, and maybe Ontario down the line. Uh, you know, this is, this is quite difficult because these current programs, there's no consistency, right? Mm-hmm. There's no real alignment um, or harmonization across these programs. So ideally what you'd like to see is uh, national policy, but then ultimately an, even an international roadmap mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, to help inform national policy uh, to allow for all of this bottom-up 
uh, action to start to align and to start to hopefully link together and, uh, and to get more efficiencies in the market and again more clarity and consistency for business. And and do you see do you see real world um, damages that that come from the fact that even in a country of thirty million in Canada, um, we've got four or five different carbon policies just within our own country alone? Does that does that does that create real world business challenges, or is that something that that is able to be overcome? I uh, I think that with the political will and leadership. Uh, it can absolutely be addressed. And I think probably the landscape, again, in the Canadian context, uh, is ripe for these kinds of, again, more disparate programs to start to be able to speak together and align um, and, and harmonize. So uh, I think on the, the technical piece, you know, bringing these programs together to allow for consistency um, is uh, is definitely can be overcome. It's just getting the, the right people in the room and uh, also just with business input is what's important. And I mean, so for context, a good example is for a Canadian business that has operations, um, let's take a, a large industry, right, with operations and therefore some kind of regulatory compliance, greenhouse gas regulatory compliance in British Columbia versus one in Quebec. Same company, maybe, but different facilities. So how to efficiently manage the compliance and the reporting um, and even making investment decisions when they're operating in two very very distinct and different um, policy environments is challenging. In looking at this with from the lens of, of sort of representing some of the business interests, um, what what would cause for celebration be for for Aida at the end of COP? So we're we're nearing say the the event goes into negotiation overtime, and we're on December twelfth or thirteenth, um, and the final agreement is signed off on. What, in your opinion, is is cause for celebration for Aida? For Aida, we would be very pleased if. And there is uh, specific language provisions around the use of markets. So allowing for parties that choose to do so to use some kind of market instrument um, uh, in order to not only achieve post-2020 targets, their nationally determined contributions, but also to help increase the levels of ambition around these targets going forward and in the future. And and will you be in Paris yourself? I will be in Paris for the entire two weeks, along with my my mighty team members and a number of our actual uh, corporate members and partners. Yeah, well, our our student energy team will be there as well. So if if these uh, if your if you guys are celebrating on the thirteenth, we'll have to be there celebrating with you. Well, I should say we uh, partner with the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, and we have pavilion, on-site pavilion space where we have dozens and dozens of events every day um, during the whole two weeks of COP related to everything from finance to markets to adaptation to the whole bottom-up, top-down, climate policy worlds colliding. So if anybody is in Paris, I uh, invite them to our pavilion to enjoy some of these discussions. Perfect. And and what's the best way for some of our listeners to find out a bit more about AIDA uh, and some of your policies and approaches? Well, thanks for asking, Sean. The best way to get in touch would be to visit our website. So that's www.ieta.org. And you will find a list of our position papers and briefings, um, but also our detailed agenda, um, COP Paris agenda, uh, that will lay out all of our key events and, uh, and again, links to our partners uh, over the course of the two weeks.
Perfect. Well, we look forward to seeing you in person in Paris. Well, thank you very much for having me. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm excited to welcome Prit Kotecha, who's the Director of Environmental Excellence and Climate Strategy from Suncor to the show. So welcome to Energy Voices, Prit. Hi. So the reason I wanted to have you on the show is that uh, the organization that you represent, Suncor, uh, has been making some really interesting comments lately in the media around uh, the concept of carbon pricing. So um, recently, Steve Williams, your CEO, came out uh, in support of a carbon price, which was something that I think caught a lot of groups off guard because they're not used to traditional oil and gas companies advocating on behalf of price carbon. So maybe to, to kick things off, can you give us a bit of background on why would a company like Suncor come out and advocate for price carbon when your primary business is the oil and gas industry? Sure. So, you know, we really believe that a carbon price that's applied economy-wide is really the single most effective lever at <clears throat> driving real emissions reductions. So whether those emissions reductions happen in the production of fuels and energy for consumers or in the use of fuels um, by consumers in terms of how they use fuel to drive their cars and, <clears throat> and other forms of needs from um, powering their, their homes uh, with electricity or heating their homes. So when you look at it from that perspective, um, carbon emissions are throughout the economy and um, if you apply an appropriate price signal, you'll drive those reductions throughout the economy. Mm-hmm. And 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 can you explain sort of um, maybe why that that particular approach to economy wide is is preferential to Suncor as opposed to say an industry specific uh, or say a cap and trade system? What is it about that economy wide uh, approach that that is sort of your rationale for supporting that particular pricing? So with regard to a specific policy architecture, you know, we operate in a number of different jurisdictions, cap and trade, um, an Alberta-based site, um, industry-specific uh, carbon policy. And, you know, we could work in any of those regimes. I think what we're saying is that under any policy architecture, you have to recognize that it isn't just one sector, as in industrial emissions, that need to be that need to be controlled. You actually have to look at emissions coming from all all different sectors, com- the commercial sector, consumers, industrials, to actually see reductions that happen at a provincial and a national level, right? So I think that's what we're kind of saying. Um, any any policy architecture would work as long as it's really applied uh, economy-wide. Mm-hmm. And, and so obviously... Um your CEO coming out and recommending uh, pricing carbon isn't something that just came out of nowhere. That's not a an idea or a strategy that's just pulled out of thin air. And so um, how does a company like Suncor, uh, before that public sort of uh, statement is made, how does a company like Suncor um, actually address or, or deal with the idea of price carbon uh, internally? So for a number of years, we've actually had what we call a shadow price of carbon. So what that means is um, within our um, corporate strategy, we have allocated a certain dollar per ton um, representing a price on carbon that we actually um, that actually exists today in in, um, in the jurisdictions that we operate, and then we sort of forecast how we see that grows over a number of years. 
Um, and and what that does is it actually drives um, corporate strategy and project developers to look at the impact that a new growth project, for example, might have on carbon emissions, and then that what what that would turn what that would result in terms of a, a cost implication to that project. And it allows us to um, analyze the impact of that product from a monetary basis that you know allows it to be compared equivalently with regards to a return on investment or other other financial metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, it also allows us to look at um, making technology choices. So as we look at um, different technologies with dry production, there's actually now a price that we could um, use to understand the return on investment of those technologies themselves. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's it's important for our listeners to uh, to to recognize the fact that um, a lot of energy companies they're they're operating with sort of payback periods or decision timelines that are in the magnitude of of twenty five or thirty or forty or fifty years on some of these projects. Um, and so the importance of sort of forecasting those prices is something that is a pretty exact science um, within some of the major energy companies. And so uh, I wanted to, to maybe get a bit more depth on on if there's any either numbers you're willing to share or sort of examples of, of how that shadow price is actually calculated and forecasted and sort of what internally at Suncor you see that shadow price of carbon being sort of as we move forward in, over the next, say, 20 years in the energy system. Sure. So we report to the um, Carbon Disclosure Project, um, and in there we disclose our, our our internal shadow price. And so we've had a shadow price for a number of years, and you know it's between fifteen to fifty-five dollars, and it's quite aligned with um, our peers in this sector. Um, and you know it's actually really it's not an exact science um, as you've described it. You know we look at the jurisdictions that we operate in and the potentials that we, we will potentially um, um, grow into. And then we understand, well, what are the existing um, carbon policies? And if they don't have a, a price signal, if it's a cap and trade, you can sort of translate that to a carbon price as well. And and then we sort of look to see, well, what do we think that's going to forecast up to taking consideration inflation and so forth. And so you know, the, the idea is that um, that's one potential um, scenario that could proceed. But then we actually look at, uh, well, let's say this were to increase um, double, or let's say weren't to increase that much. So we do what we call risk analysis around that carbon POV to stress test our different um, assets as well. So, you know, it's the whole process of evaluating the impact of projects on this carbon price that's more important than the carbon price itself because we just, you know, you can't, we don't have a a crystal ball to shadow to foresee what the future looks like. But what we can do is we can look at different scenarios to see how well positioned we would be in under different um, policy regimes. Mm -hmm. And and have there been projects that would have been otherwise economical that have not been greenlit because of a $50 shadow price? Um, I would probably say not. um, But what the shadow price has helped to inform us is definitely around technology decisions. So when we're looking at investments in um, different technologies to extract oil sands or to produce uh, low-carbon power, it's actually helped to inform us, well, how much does this carbon price influence us on the decision of that technology choice? 
Mm -hmm. And and maybe we'll segue into into more of that conversation about what impact price carbon can have sort of on the day to day business um, of a major energy company. So so in forecasting at say that fifty to fifty dot five dollar per ton rate um, that doesn't really exist anywhere in Canada right now. We've got sort of fifteen dollars in Alberta, thirty um, ish dollars in BC. Um, how how would like if if after say COP twenty one the the entire world comes out uh, and and in a crystal ball world every jurisdiction simultaneously implements uh, a hard fifty dollar per ton um, carbon tax what would that result in from uh, what how would that change your approach to technology and innovation internally at Suncor? So I don't think it would necessarily change our approach, but it would just drive a signal. So. Um, we have what we call, um, you know, our own marginal cost abatement curve, which actually lists a bunch of projects that um, are are always good to do, like energy efficiency projects, which are under uh, under zero dollars a ton. So you know, they drive real reductions and they return value. And then we have projects like carbon capture, which are you know above a hundred dollars today. And it, and and within that range, it basically allows us to say, okay, well, what what is the um, maximum that we would then implement in in a jurisdiction that we operate, which has fifty dollars, and then you would then look at the technologies and assess their potential. So it, it basically moves you up that marginal cost abatement curve. Um, having a shadow price for a number of years, it's it's, all, it's also driven us to ensure that we have a technology and innovation strategy and a funnel to continue to um, look at new technologies that could be cost competitive. So um, it won't necessarily change that approach. It would just allow us to implement technologies um, that are further along that marginal cost payment curve. Mm -hmm. And and. Obviously, there's the sort of technologies that you're already looking at, um, and that you have sort of modeled along your 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 marginal your abatement curve there. Um, but to to what degree or to what influence do you think uh, a strong price signal on carbon would have on new innovations in the world of energy? Uh, do you do you do you get the sense that there is a strong innovation ecosystem in the oil and gas industry now, or sort of what impact or, or influence do you think that would have on net new innovations into the energy system? You know, I do think it would drive um, external um, technology providers and innovators to actually see that there's a lot more potential with, with having that strong signal, right? Um, it, it basically gives them um, a little bit of, um, of, a, of a financial metric to figure, hey, could we develop a technology which is, you know, to your point, lower than $50 a ton because that actually would, they could actually see a market potential or a commercial application in that sense, right? So. I do think you'll probably see on a global basis a lot more acceleration having a strong market price, mm -hmm. a strong carbon signal. Yeah, perfect. Um, and I want to switch gears a little bit uh, and just explore a little bit more about your role uh, internally at Suncor. So with a title that includes the director of climate change for a major oil and gas company, um, what are the typical things that you're working on within within the energy industry and within the oil and gas context um, as it specifically relates to climate change? So I think um, the first thing is really ensuring that we have this robust um, carbon point of view, which sort of reflects our position on how we see the world evolving um, in terms of that policy context. And then driving what, what, what you know, I'm calling our own climate strategy, which is what are we doing to reduce our own emissions and also adapt to a, um, you know,
know, a changing world in terms of climate change adaptation. So that means um, working collaboratively in organizations like COSIER where we're driving, um, defining the problems and where are the areas where we need to focus to reduce carbon emissions and collaborating with other industry peers to um, develop technology and accelerate the pace of that development. Um, it also means participating in unlikely forums outside of our sector where we're trying to understand, well, what does a decarbonized world look like um, for, for Canada? And what would that mean with regards to the oil sands and its place in that, um, in that decarbonized world? So, um, you know, a lot of this external and internal um, collaboration to ensure that we're adapting and we're also driving our own strategies um, to, um, to reduce our emissions and, and adapt to that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the, the big takeaways that, that I have is a sense that um, that companies like Suncor and, and energy companies aren't going to be caught flat-footed uh, if things like a global price on carbon or even a, a Canadian-specific price on carbon are, are arrived at because there's sort of been this continual narrative that, um, oh, it's it's going to be uh, bad for jobs and it's going to lead to sort of a, a stifled economy. And, and I get the sense um, from talking to you that, that there are strategies, there are plans, there are sort of resources that are ready to be mobilized in, in the event that we, we come out with a stronger price on carbon. And so um, I, just, I really, I'm really glad we're able to share this perspective with our listeners that, uh, that even people that are sort of intimately um, in involved with the traditional oil and gas industry are sort of ready for some of the energy system transformation that's coming to us. Yeah, no, it's, it's exciting space to work in. You know, I actually, you know, I, I believe, and I think Suncor also believes that there's a place for oil sands and there's a place for bitumen in the energy mix of the future. And, you know, having a strong um, price on carbon and having, um, um, collaborations like COSIA will just put um, our product to potentially be a low-carbon product and a cost-competitive product that will be there for a number of years as we sort of um, understand what the future energy mix is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to to share the, the perspective of Suncor um, and, and specifically what Suncor's work is doing around carbon pricing and climate change with our listeners, because I think it'll be uh, a really interesting and new perspective for a lot of our listeners. Great. Thanks for allowing me the time to provide that context. Okay. Take care, Brett. Bye. Good day, everybody. Thank you, Sean. For the introduction. I'm sitting here and I have the pleasure to sit here with Miranda Schreus. Miranda is a professor for comparative politics and she's the director of the Environmental Policy Research Center of the Free University of Berlin. She is as well a member of the German Advisory Council on the Environment and therefore she is a direct consultant to the German government on environmental affairs. And on top of that, she's also the vice chair of the European Environment and Sustainable Development Advisory Councils. So, welcome to the show, Miranda. Thanks so much. It's really nice to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Okay, Miranda, I already introduced you a little bit, um, but who are you, what do you do, and what are your scientific fields of interest? Maybe we'll All start right. with that. What am I? Well, I'm an academic who does uh, a lot of work related to climate and uh, low-carbon energy questions, and I'd say I'm an interdisciplinary scientist who um, was trained both in the natural sciences and the social sciences. Um, So I have a PhD in political science, and what I'm very interested in are questions about how we can better use um, 
governmental structures and policies and programs to promote action on sustainability questions, climate change questions. Um, I have a big research group at the Free University of Berlin, people who are doing work on those kinds of questions, a lot of people writing their PhDs, uh, master's students, so it's, it's a really vibrant kind of place to be, and Berlin is too, because it's a place where there's a lot that's going on related to all of these questions. Sounds good. Lovely. We already heard quite a lot um, previously now about the COP, what it is, what it means to us, how important it is. Um, so, but what do we? But what I would like to inquire, talking to here, to you here, is um, how do you define success in regards to a conference of the parties, and what does really need to happen if we want to call the COP 21 in Paris a success? Well, you've already heard that the COPs have been going on for a long time, and actually, uh, the first one was. Um, Back in, in 1995, um, um, when we started to negotiate for, for dealing with some kind of um, conference, um, uh, some kind of agreement that would lead to a global agreement. And the 1997 Kyoto Protocol was the first step in that direction. The 1997 Kyoto Protocol but only dealt with um, the OECD countries, so the richest countries in the world, and um, the rest of the world really was only involved in the Kyoto Protocol and on the receiving end, um, receiving um, assistance through various mechanisms built into the Kyoto uh, Protocol, like the Clean Development Mechanism or Joint Implementation ways where developed countries could um, get credit for taking actions, not domestically, but in those other countries. Um, the um, most recent agreement, um, or what we're hoping for uh, as an agreement in, in Paris, is supposed to include the entire world. So a success would be is if we, in fact, do get an agreement that everybody signs on to. Um, but there's different degrees of success. One degree of success would be a binding target, legally binding target, that had strong reduction commitments and where we were on track to meeting a target of not having global temperatures increase on average by more than two degrees in 2050. That is highly unlikely. Instead, what we're much more likely to get is a lesser degree of success, which will be some kind of agreement that's not binding, um, but where pledges are made by different countries to take action. Basically, handshakes of honor among countries where they say, this is what I'm planning to do, uh, what are you planning to do, shaking hands on it, and hoping that action is actually carried out. So that would be um, a lesser degree of success something in between and that's what I'm hoping for because I think it's um, the best we can get is that kind of handshake agreement that has a stipulation that the targets that have been set will be looked at again within three to five years and will be notched up as needed as the science points out to us most likely that we're not doing enough. Um, so in a sense, to get um, the first step of a process that isn't going to end in December, but really is just going to continue um, a long, long walk that's been going on already since the 1992 United Nations Conference on Environment and Development. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Well, 
I don't know if, if I'm happy now to hear all that, but obviously this is this is how it is and this is how the case is. So you already kind of pointed out the dark side. So what do you think is really you already what is the likelihood that we'll ever have an agreement at all? And um, what are the factors that could really cause this to happen? Well, where I have a little bit of hope is if you think about the Kyoto Protocol, one of the big problems is that the biggest emitter back then, the United States, um, pulled out of the agreement. And so you had a, a loose agreement, but it wasn't um, with one of the most important countries um, as part of the process. And what looks different is that now there's two super big emitters, China and the United States. Between these two countries, you have 40 to 50 percent of global CO2 emissions. So the big difference with the past is neither of those countries were expected well, China wasn't expected and the United States pulled out of the Kyoto Protocol. So, so China had no um, CO2 emission reduction requirements and the U.S. wasn't involved. So um, what we hope now is that that's going to change and there's the signs that it might because the United States under President Obama um, already back in 2009 um, indicated for the first time um, targets for how it might reduce emissions through 2025. And um, very recently, Obama's administration has um, pushed through several presidential orders under the uh, U.S. Clean Air Act that target reducing CO2 emissions from coal-fired power plants. So that means the U.S. is on track to um, uh, actually reducing its mission, emissions in the coming years. And the U.S. and China have sh shaken hands. And China has also said that it's willing to reduce its emissions by um, some amount starting around 2030. So it's going to cap its emissions around 2030. So that means that the two biggest emitters, the U.S. and China, basically have already shaken hands, which puts a lot of positive momentum into the agreement. It doesn't mean binding, because Obama would never get the U.S. Congress to ratify anything. But, yeah. but it, they are shaking hands. So, okay, we got this step of shaking hands at least, so let's see what's, kind of, what's happening after that. You already said we might have an agreement, we might not have an agreement. If we have an agreement, we still have to have a look at it in the next three to five years. So now, at this COP, there has been so much, yeah, let's say, attention on this on this COP. What is going to happen in the next years? What's going to happen in next year and in two years and in three years at all, in general? You know, I think um, the, the process is something that's going to have to continue for decades. So one of the really important things is that people realize an agreement like this is one step in a really long and arduous um, walk that we're going to have to follow. Um, so a lot of things need to happen and, and I think um, one thing we need to do is be careful not to put all of our eggs into the basket of the international negotiations. Mm -hmm. That sets a bit of a tone, it sets um, important directions for industry to be thinking about, it can help move finance in the direction of, of climate mitigation and adaptation. But what we really need is everybody, students and universities and cities at the level of cities and transportation sectors, each and every single actor group to be thinking about where can we make a difference. So it's not just the politicians that meet in Paris, but it's all of us. And maybe also the students that are listening to this podcast here right now, isn't it? The students are the future, so for sure. 
Oh, yes. All right. Thank you, Miranda, for this interview and looking forward to hear from you again. My pleasure. Thanks so much. One of the things that we pride ourselves on at Student Energy is always showcasing multiple perspectives on every single subject. With this being the 21st Conference of the Parties, there have obviously been 20 previous events that have yet to result in a legally binding climate framework. The next segment is a portion of a speech from Barry Brill, who is the Science and Energy Minister of New Zealand, who explains why he feels COP21 will fail. I feel it necessary to draw attention to the fact that Barry Brill is exceedingly pessimistic about certain aspects and does skew some facts in favour of his arguments, but there are some very legitimate questions and concerns in his opinion as to why COP21 will fail. So without further ado, here's Barry Brill on some of the challenges he feels will come out of COP21 and why he feels there will be no binding agreement that comes out of this event. At COP15 in Copenhagen in 2009, there were 131 heads of government in attendance. And that makes it the largest conference of political leaders ever in, in history. The build-up to that conference was phenomenal, as most of you will remember, and the outcome was a total disaster for the climate change movement. The conference was hijacked, as it is said, by the basic group. It's important to realise the basic group, which are the initials of Brazil, South Africa, India and China. It's important to recognise that the climate conferences are really all about that group. These are the, the four countries which will provide uh, more than half of all of the expected uh, emissions uh, over the period between now and the middle of the century. At Copenhagen, the basic group met separately. The President of the United States gatecrashed that meeting, so he was lucky to find out before everybody else what the decision was going to be. The leaders of the European Union only found out when it was announced to the conference as a whole. So the decision was taken by that small group. And you'll see in the slide what the reaction of uh, some of the activists, well, what the reactions were to, uh, to, the, uh, uh, to that conference. At about the same time, or just before the conference, the Climate Gate emails had come out uh, and had got a good deal of press. And then there was the crash of, the, of December 2009. And it did look in the early part of 2010 as if the whole climate change movement was pretty much dead and buried. Well, we should have put a stake through its heart then because it's been working even more rapidly in recent times to resurrect it, uh, essentially by means of COP21, which will be held in Paris in, at the end of next year. The objective, the goal of COP21 is, uh, is on the slide, 
It, they are looking to a legally binding and universal agreement to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now that may not be as ambitious as the uh, Copenhagen goals, which included, you may recall, as my colleague Lord Monckton pointed out, within the hundreds of pages of script was the to lay the foundations for a world government. In fact, the world was their oyster. They were going to decarbonise the world. There was nothing that was beyond their reach at that time. This was going to be more modest in COP21, COP uh, but more in some ways turns on it because it's going to be the last chance saloon. If it doesn't happen in Paris next year, then there probably won't be any more chances. And I'm making two predictions in regard to COP21. These are not scenarios or projections, they're predictions, uh, that it will be an embarrassing failure. The, although the conference is to be held at the end of next year, it's not due to come into effect until 2020. And the reason for that is that it has to be then ratified by individual governments all through the 193 countries who are expected to be signatories to this, to this treaty. So there will be, because it's intended to be a legally binding treaty, there will be debates on country by country over a period of years uh, and the negotiators at Paris next year will be painfully aware of the fact that this is going to be a long-winded debate. The irony of it is that the goal of not exceeding 2%, uh, not exceeding 2 degrees of warming uh, will be achieved in any case. That is my second prediction. Uh, and that's, of course, a very good reason why the first prediction should come true. There is no need for COP21. More and more people are, are becoming aware of that fact. There are three reasons why I predict that it will be an embarrassing failure. Three categories of reasons, if you like. And the first is the track record of these COPs. There have been 20 of them. And they've all been failures. Each one of them has wish lists in advance. None of them have ever achieved those wish lists. The, there hasn't been one success that they can point to and to say that was our, the pinnacle of, of, of our achievement. Going right back to when it all started in Rio at the Earth Summit in 1992, it was agreed and set out in the, uh, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change that the, Europe, that the developed countries uh, expected to reduce their emissions to 1990 levels by the year 2000. Well, what happened, in fact, was that they increased their emissions by 20% uh, by the year 2000. The next serious effort was Kyoto in 1997. The Outcomes of Kyoto were a dismal failure. During the period from the beginning of the Kyoto period, 1990 to 2012, the end of the Kyoto period, during that period, 
world emissions increased by 60%. Kyoto is mainly a, a European convention. It is heavily Eurocentric. And yet Europe increased its, uh, the amount of, the percentage of its energy that it gets from coal increased from 43% to over 50% during that same period. Then in uh, 2007, there was the Bali Conference, and they set out their, the, the Bali Roadmap, which was aimed at the basic countries. And the objective was to have the, the basic countries, in particular China, uh, to enter into voluntary targets. Unlike the Kyoto Convention, which was legally enforceable, uh, the Bali roadmap was intended to entice the uh, basic countries to enter into voluntary targets. Well, in short, they simply refused. They've shown no indication that they are in any way sympathetic to the, to the proposal. Uh, they talk about energy intensity. Uh, they talk about predicting where they might be in terms of setting targets or setting out to reduce uh, to some cap, uh, there's been no sign of it. Then there was Copenhagen in 2009, which we've already uh, covered, and it was, of course, a total fiasco. And in Cancun in 2010, it was agreed that they were going to have this Green Climate Fund of $100 billion a year. This was really more about redistribution of global wealth than it was about climate, uh, but it was the, seen as the means to provide reparations, as they called it, to the developing countries uh, and uh, allow the, uh, the uh, developed countries to virtually buy their uh, buy off the guilt of having filled the atmosphere with the, uh, the emissions of the previous decades. The Green Climate Fund has never been funded. It became pretty clear at Warsaw last year that it's not going to be funded. Suggestion is that it should be obtained from the private sector. That's a sort of a woolly view that the, the investments that are made through the Climate Fund are going to pay off in some way, which is totally uh, opposed to the concept of reparations. This is money, uh, conscience money to be paid out and I don't see much prospect of that being paid for by the private sector on a voluntary basis. So the track record so far has been no reduction in emissions, they are greater than ever. There's been no country has adopted climate policies that are reducing their level of emissions, some, particularly the US, are uh, enjoying a reduction in emissions, but that's not as a consequence of climate policy. So they've got no runs on the board after the uh, first 20 COPs, and so there's a very good grounding for saying one shouldn't expect much from the COP21. The second category of reasons why it won't happen next year is the negotiating climate which has 
become much tougher than it was in 2009. A major argument made in a, in a, a lot of countries, particularly in the UK, was the peak oil argument that it was only going to be a matter of time and not very, very much time before pricing was going to become very volatile and in fact unpredictable. It wouldn't be possible to build power plants. Nobody would be able to uh, predict what the price of gas or, or any other fossil fuel was going to be. Uh, so they had to get off that whole uh, uh, chain and get into a different way of doing things. So this peak oil prospect, which has been around for so many years, is now virtually dead and buried with a stake to its heart. Uh, the current level of reserves, the years of forward recoverable reserves, unknown reserves, are at a level higher than they've ever been in history. Even though we're using more than ever before, the recoverable reserves uh, are higher than ever before. So that peak oil argument, which was important, no longer available. Another sort of co-benefit argument was green growth. Green jobs. I don't need to tell an American audience about the stimulus policy and how what a great success it was. Uh, there are there have been so many studies now done. I, I think in particular of the one in the UK by the uh, Global Warming Policy Foundation, which establishes that for every job you get in the green energy sector, you lose two jobs in the, re in the rest of the economy. And of course that was preceded by a study in Spain, which was the subject of a presentation at the last uh, Heartland Conference, uh, which, which found something very similar. That if you want to destroy jobs, green growth is the way to go. So that one's gone. Uh, subsidies, uh, as we have heard, subsidies in Europe have uh, have started to fall away, uh, and the momentum for renewable energy is running out fast. That brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Kai Sinclair. All previous episodes of Energy Voices can be found by searching for Energy Voices in your favorite podcast service or by streaming online at bit.ly slash energyvoices. Voices.